program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. Thanks very much, Paul, um, and thank you all for coming. Yes, uh, well, I'm not going to examine you all on the questions that are up there or the statements that are up there, but I just thought it would be, it might be interesting for you while you're waiting for the lecture to start to have a look at, at some possible true or false statements about juries and maybe just to make a note for yourself about which one of those um, different statements you think are true and which ones you think might be false. And that's part, really, we're going to, I'm going to be talking about um, pretty much all of those things today. Um, as Paul said, the title of the talk today is Sex, Drugs, Race, and the Internet, Jury Myths and Challenges. And we will be talking about sex and drugs and race and the internet. It wasn't just a, a cheap way of, of getting your attention. Um, what I'm going to talk about in today's lecture is um, obviously the jury system, and that is what happens when the public are the judges in criminal cases. Um, I'll also be talking about why and how the UCL uh, jury research has been conducted in this country, um, and really then exploring with you how we've managed to expose a number of myths about juries in this country, um, and then really at the end to, to think a little bit further ahead and to um, examine some of the challenges that are currently confronting the future of trial by jury in this country, and also to think about what might be happening in the not-too-distant future in terms of whether the jury system can survive. Um, so just a little bit of background on trial by jury. Um, we're going to be talking about trial by jury in this country, which is England and Wales. As some of you may know, there's a very different system in Scotland, a separate system in Northern Ireland. And a lot of what we, most people tend to think about juries can actually come from uh, Hollywood movies and which focus on juries in the United States. Um, but the question I'm posing here is, is there, is jury trial a right in this country? And while there is a very long legal tradition of having members of the public sit in judgment in criminal cases, um, there is, in fact, no constitutional right in this country. That's very different from the United States, where there is a very clear constitutional right to trial by jury. In this country, it's Parliament that determines who has a legal right to be tried by a jury. And over the last 50, 60 years, that right has really been increasingly restricted by Parliament. So today, the scope of trial by jury is that we have virtually no juries in civil cases anymore. Um, juries, in fact, decide only a very small proportion of all criminal cases in this country, uh, approximately 15,000 a year out of over a million. Um, but the really important point to note is, while that's a very small proportion of the criminal cases in this country, they are in fact the most serious criminal cases where a defendant is facing the greatest loss of liberty. So it's a small proportion, but really the most significant cases. Um, so 
there'll be arguments on both sides. What are the benefits of trial by jury and perhaps what are some of the drawbacks? Benefits of trial by jury is, the argument is usually that with the public being involved in the justice system, um, this can lead to the public acceptance of verdicts in criminal cases. Um, also, the idea is that if you have a representative sample of the local population who are sitting in judgment in criminal cases, this hopefully will result in unbiased decision making. Um, having the public sit in judgment in criminal cases also is important in terms of providing protection from, for individuals against the power of the state. Because if the public aren't sitting in judgment, then it's uh, a professional judge who is paid by the state. And while we have a very independent um, judiciary in this country, it would mean that the judge and the prosecutor and the police who collected the evidence against the individual were all paid for by the state. But uh, trial by jury is not without its critics. Um, criticisms or drawbacks of, of the jury system are, it's frequently been argued that it's because it's more time consuming that jury trials last longer than trial by judge alone, therefore they're more costly. I think we can all imagine that that's probably a, a very powerful argument these days in the current economic situation. Um, there are also concerns, have been concerns for many years that juries are unrepresentative and biased. Um, that also that the jury system can in, impose an unfair burden on members of the public by asking them to give up their work, their home life, and so on for an unreasonable period of time. And then there are other concerns that as, as untrained legal minds, uh, members of, of the jury are perhaps unable to comp comprehend complex legal or perhaps expert scientific evidence. Um, so what do we actually know about juries in this country? Um, one thing we do have quite a good handle on and have had for a while is what does the public think about trial by jury? And the, the evidence is really that there is strong and sustained support for juries in this country. And there have been a number of very interesting public opinion surveys that have been done in the last 10 years looking at the extent to which the public supports trial by jury. Um, the, the Bar Council and the Law Society, those who represent the legal profession, carried out a study uh, of the public in 2002 and found that the overwhelming proportion of the public trusted a jury to come to the right decision and felt actually that trial by jury was fairer than trial by judge alone. There was also been an interesting number of uh, surveys asking the public if we were to have a Bill of Rights in this country, what are the rights that you think are the most important to enshrine in a Bill of Rights? And these include things beyond the legal context, but very interestingly, the, the right that comes out top of the list in these, these surveys is the right to trial by jury, alongside the right to free medical treatment on the NHS. So that gives you an idea of, of where where trial by jury stands in this country in, in the public's perception. Um, but how much do we actually know about how the jury system works? And I'd like to go back and start about 10 years ago in 2001. And for the scientists in the room, um, you'll know what I'm going to say is that as far as I'm concerned, there was pretty much a black hole mm. about how much we knew about trial by jury at that point. Um, one of the reasons for that is that we had really had no 
reliable, robust uh, re research with actual juries since 1992. Part of that it was due to something called the Section 8 of the Contempt of Court Act. Um, there are probably people in this audience who've been in, on jury service. I'm not sure how many. Um, yes, I see a few hands. Um, you may recall from your time on jury service that you would have been told that it is a criminal offense for you to reveal what is, has been said in the jury deliberating room. That it's also a criminal offense under Section 8 of the Contempt of Court Act for someone like myself, as an academic researcher interested in juries, to ask a juror about what was said in the deliberating room. Also, that would mean it would be a criminal offense for a journalist to do that. What happened as a result of the Section 8 of the Contempt of Court Act, which came in in, in 1981, was that amongst the academic community, they basically read that as saying it's impossible to do any research with jurors. Um, and as a result, there was really no research looking at how the jury system worked, whether it was effective, whether it was functioning properly. And in the absence of good, solid research, what filled the black hole were a number of things. First is professional anecdote um, by members of the legal profession who practice in front of juries in criminal cases on a daily basis, who would have very strong views about whether jurors understood complex evidence, whether they were biased against ethnic minority defendants, and so on, um, but without any actual research to back that up. The other thing that filled the black hole in this country were, were, was research and high-profile cases from other jurisdictions, most notably the United States, where there are some particular issues to do with the fairness of the jury system in regards to ethnic minority defendants. Uh, it began to be believed very strongly in this country that juries were both unrepresentative and biased against ethnic minorities, but that was based mostly on American research. And we also have some long-standing historic views of juries as a bit lazy, not paying attention, unable to comprehend what goes on. So um, what I'd like to just explain to you, first of all, is why the uh, jury project started. Um, it's the, the jumping off point was really in response to the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, which most of you will know um, was an inquiry into the failed prosecution of uh, individuals who committed a, a racist murder against a, a young black man here in, in London. Um, what most people know about that inquiry is that it concluded that the police, um, that there was institutional racism in the police. What was less well covered was the fact that the inquiry recommended that all government institutions needed to assess whether they discriminated against ethnic minorities directly or indirectly. And as a result of that, the government commissioned a whole series of research um, studies looking at the court system and whether there was discrimination in it. And one of those projects was the project that I conducted with juries, looking at uh, whether there was racial discrimination in the jury system. Um, this represented, the reason we were asked to look at this be is because it represented some very long-standing concerns about juries being unrepresentative. And also there had been a few cases where reports had come out that racist remarks had been made in the jury in, uh, during jury deliberations. So the key questions we looked at, this is the first 
jury study. I'm going to explain to you about two, which really makes up the UCL jury project. But the first one um, looked at these specific questions. Does the jury system produce, the jury summoning systems, the process of actually you know, going out to the public and, and summoning you to do jury service, does that produce representative juries in this country? Um, are ethnic minorities excluded from this system or unwilling to serve? And does it matter who does jury service? So does it matter what the racial composition of a jury is in terms of their decision making? So in terms of summoning jurors, those of you who've done jury service, you'll probably recognize the, the summons up in the top right-hand corner. Um, the, what happens is that each Crown Court in the country has its own unique um, catchment area from where jurors are summoned from. Um, and what happens is that you will be randomly selected from the electoral list. So in order to be summoned for jury service, you have to be on the electoral list. Um, and what we did is we conducted a survey of everyone who was summoned for jury service in every Crown Court in England and Wales. Um, it, in a specific period, in one in 2003 and one in 2005. And what we identified, we asked them to self-identify their ethnicity, their gender, their age, their income, their employment, their religion, and their language. And that meant we were then able to compare that profile of everyone summoned for each court with the actual population profile for that particular court based on the 2001 census. And our key finding was that most current thinking at the time about who is summoned for jury service is based on myth, not reality. And I'll run through a few of these for you. So the first myth was that black and minority ethnic groups are underrepresented among those summoned for jury service. The reality is, is that in virtually every Crown Court that we looked at, there was no significant underrepresentation of ethnic minorities among those who were summoned for jury service. And I'll just slightly digress here. Um, black and minority ethnic groups is, in government speak, um, referred to as BME. So please bear with me if you haven't heard that term before. It's uh, not a particularly attractive term, but it's the official term used for ethnic minorities in government reports. Um, the second myth is that ethnic minorities are more likely than white jurors not to respond to summonses, and this reflects a, a greater unwillingness to do jury service because perhaps that re reflecting a lack of belief in the fairness of the system. The government was particularly concerned about whether that was the case. Um, what we found, in fact, was that there were no significant differences between ethnic minority and white members of the public in their willingness to serve or their support for the jury system. We conducted a, a Mori poll as well as part of this study looking at public attitudes to jury service, and there were no differences between ethnic minority and white members of the public. In fact, what we found is that the main factor affecting whether people responded to their summonses was whether they lived in an area of high residential mobility. So that probably is very straightforward. If, if it's an area where people move around a lot, the chances are they didn't respond to their summonses because by the time the summons arrived, they'd moved elsewhere. We then looked at, so that's a summoning system. So that was a sort of very big positive tick for the summoning system. It seemed to be uh, producing very representative groups of individuals at, at virtually every Crown Court in England and Wales. Then we looked at who actually does jury service. So not everyone who is summoned will serve. It's, it's completely possible that people may be ineligible 
um, or excused for a variety of reasons. So we looked in much more detail about who actually does jury service at each Crown Court. And again, what we found was that the current thinking about who does and who does not do jury service is also based on myth and not reality. So, and a few of the myths are um, that ethnic minorities are underrepresented among those doing jury service. In fact, we found that that was not the case, that in almost all courts, there was no significant underrepresentation of ethnic minority jurors. And in fact, the most significant factors in determining whether someone who is summoned <coughs> will actually do jury service are their level of income and their employment status, not their ethnicity. And this will explain it a bit more. Um, the other myth, very widespread myth at the time, is that there is widespread avoidance of jury service amongst the British public, and that jury service is for those who are not important or clever enough to get out of it. It's very heartening to find that that's not the case. The reality is that there is no mass avoidance of jury service in this country. 85% of those summoned actually replied to their summonses, and the vast majority of those actually did do jury service. The interesting thing is, um, I don't know how we can completely define the important and clever in society, but if we measure that a bit on income, um, the interesting thing is that the higher the income uh, of the individual served, um, the more likely they were to do jury service. So higher income people actually have the highest rates of doing jury service. Right, so that's, again, that's, uh, all of that study reflected the idea that actually the summoning system was working remarkably well. But it did beg the question as well um, about whether race actually affects jury decision making. So that was the, the last part of the first study that we conducted. We did this in a different way in order to understand how juries make decisions and whether race would be a factor, the race of the defendant would be a factor in their decision making. And what we did is we asked a very large number of actual juries at Crown Courts around the country, in this study in London, um, to view a film of an actual case. Um, the defendant was charged with a violent crime. It was, a, it was an assault. The only difference was that some juries who saw, saw the case, the defendant was black. For other juries, the defendant was white. And for other juries, the defendant was Asian. And the study was run with racially mixed juries in London. And what we found was that there was no evidence of discrimination by racially mixed juries in London. 27 different juries saw this exact same film. And with the exception of one jury, they all reached exactly the same verdict, regardless of whether the defendant was white, black, or Asian. Um, but our study also did highlight the fact that most ethnic minority defendants in the country, if they're tried outside of London, in most instances will be tried by an all-white jury. So it did leave a very big question unanswered, which was, do all-white juries discriminate against ethnic minority defendants? And that led to the next study. So this is the, the most recent UCL jury project study, um, which was called in the end, Are Juries Fair? Question mark. But we started out with these series of questions to answer. So we had the one remaining question about race to answer. Um, do all white juries discriminate against black and minority ethnic defendants? But that, the study then very quickly became a much wider study, looking at some much more fundamental or equally fundamental issues about the fairness of the jury system. 
um, and that is, do juries rarely convict on certain offenses or at certain courts? because there were widespread beliefs that that was the case. Um, do jurors understand legal directions? This has been a long-standing issue of concern. Um, do jurors know what to do about improper jury conduct? Are jurors aware of media coverage of their cases? And how is the internet affecting trial by jury? So I'm going to quickly go through with you what our findings were, how we conducted the study, and then what our findings were. So we, again, conducted all the research that the UCL Jury Project undertakes is always and only done with actual juries at court. We don't use volunteers, we don't use students, um, and so we don't conduct mock jury studies. Um, but we use three different methods to answer these questions. We use the same case simulation that we'd use with the juries in London to look at whether all white juries discriminated against ethnic minorities. But we then to look at things like the consistency of, of jury verdicts and whether they differed by offense or by court, um, we actually conducted a very large-scale analysis of all actual jury verdicts in all Crown Courts in England and Wales in 2006 and 2008. So that amounts to, it starts with about half a million charges against defendants and amounts to about 69,000 verdicts. Um, and then we also conducted post-verdict interviews with juries to explore the issues of whether they were aware of media coverage of their case and also whether they were using the internet improperly during trial. And so the findings, um, in terms of whether all white juries discriminated against ethnic minority defendants, we asked 41 actual juries at Nottingham and at Winchester to try this same case again, seeing exactly the same case that I'd explained to you before. And we could find no evidence of racial discrimination by all white juries. The jury, the, their verdicts showed no tendency to convict the black or Asian defendant more often than the white defendant. And we argue in the study that these are highly reliable findings, in part because we've conducted this very controlled research with actual juries at court, but also because our more in-depth analysis of all the jury verdicts in this country in 2006 and 2008 support our findings. Um, what we found is, first of all, that ethnic minority defendants kind of interestingly plead not guilty and opt for a jury trial um, consistently more often than white defendants, which ultimately means they're three times more likely to be in front of a jury and face a jury verdict. But we could find no statistical difference in jury verdicts based on the race of the defendant. Um, so it, they ranged from 63% to 67%, depending on what the <coughs> ethnicity of the defendant uh, was, but that was, there was no statistically significant difference. Um, one of the things that this does raise is quite an interesting uh, situation in which some of you may be well aware that it's widely acknowledged, it's researched and acknowledged by the government that members of an ethnic minority group are disproportionately more likely to be stopped, to be searched, to be arrested and to be charged by the police. But the interesting thing that we found is that when an ethnic minority defendant is actually before a jury, it's the one stage in the criminal justice system where they are not disproportionately treated. So enough for race and just about on to the sex and drugs. Um, but I will just uh, give you some, a, a summary of a few findings about actually how effective and efficient juries are. 
Um, and we found that they appear to be both very effective and very efficient. That actually, once they're sworn, and they're in court, and they're sworn onto the jury, the juries themselves are rarely discharged for any improper conduct. Uh, once they're sworn, they deliberate on almost all the charges that have been put to them. Um, if they don't, it's because they've been directed by the judge to return a specific verdict. So that means they never got into the deliberating room. But once they actually get into the deliberating room, they reach a verdict over 99% of the time. So some of you may have heard about hung juries, when a jury is unable to reach a verdict. We found that this really, it's extremely, extremely rare for this ever to occur. And if it does occur, it almost always occurs when a jury has been presented with multiple charges against one or more defendants. And in those cases, they are able to reach some verdicts, but perhaps not one or two of the others. So they are very effective, very efficient. And what about the sex and drugs? Well, this part of the study looked at whether the type of offense uh, an individual is charged with is likely to influence the extent to which the jury will convict or not. So is there a relationship between the type of offense and the jury conviction rate? And we found that, in fact, the, one of the key factors that was significant in jury conviction rates was what offense is being put to the jury to reach a verdict on. Um, and what we concluded was that offenses with the highest and lowest jury conviction rates suggest that juries are actually trying the case on the evidence and the law. And that's because where you have the highest conviction rates, these are offenses where the strongest physical evidence is being presented to the jury against a defendant. And the lowest conviction rates are those types of offenses, and I'm going to give you some examples in a second, are where the, the law requires the jury to be sure about what was the state of mind of either the defendant or the alleged victim at the time of the incident. So I'm not sure if you can, you should be able to see that. Um, the offenses that are highlighted in green are those offenses, there are, there are hundreds of different offenses that might be presented to a jury. And the ones in green are the offenses of all offenses that have the highest jury conviction rates. So you'll see um, making indecent photographs of children has the highest conviction rate of 89%, but also drug possession with intent to supply, death by dangerous driving, uh, murder, various issues to do with, with uh, conspiracy to rob and fraud and so on. So those, all those types of offenses, are, I, I hope you can imagine the type of evidence that's going to be presented against a defendant, in most cases, is going to be very strong physical evidence against a defendant. Those offenses that appear in red are the lowest jury conviction rates for all offenses. And what we have there are um, mostly assault-type offenses, where it's going to be the defendant says, this is what happened. The alleged victim claims something else happened. It's one person's word against another, often in the absence uh, of any witnesses or other evidence. So we concluded that actually this is quite a good sign for juries, that, that the higher conviction rates are based on actual evidence, the lower conviction rates are ones where we can probably all imagine how difficult it is. Because as a jury, what you're told is you have to be sure before you can convict. So it's not just, well, I think he or she might have done it. You have to be sure. 
So this also revealed some myths about jury conviction rates. The first being that juries rarely convict defendants in rape cases. Um, and it, that has been claimed in the past that that is due to juror bias against female complainants. In fact, what we found is that juries convict more often than they acquit in rape cases, that there is a 55% conviction rate in rape cases, and that is based on an analysis of every single jury verdict in a rape case in a two-year period, over 4,000 verdicts. Um, and we argue in the report that uh, there is a low conviction rate in rape cases. That's a conviction rate that talks about how many convictions are achieved from the point at which uh, a rape complaint is alleged to the police and a final conviction is achieved. Um, our argument is that there is a low conviction rate for rape, but it's not due to juries. Another myth we exposed is that juries rarely convict defendants at certain courts. Many members of the legal profession have very strong views about this, and Snaresbrook Crown Court in Greater London has for years had a very notorious reputation for juries that refuse to convict. In fact, we found that jury conviction rates by court range from 69% to 53%. So you can all do the math. That means there's no Crown Court in the country um, where juries are more likely to acquit than convict, and poor old Snaresbrook actually has a higher than average conviction rate. Right. Um, the next thing we looked at is the extent to which jurors understand legal directions. Um, this was part of the case simulation, so every single juror heard exactly the same direction from the judge. Um, we asked them how easy were the judge's instructions to understand. Uh, you'll see most of them said yes, they were quite easy to understand, but when we actually asked them to identify whether they could recall exactly what the two questions were that the judge told them they had to answer in order to convict someone, um, unfortunately, only a small proportion could remember those two questions, both those questions, in exactly the same terms used by the judge. Um, but if you gave the jurors a written summary, then they were much more likely to be able to recall the judge's instructions. We also found that it's younger jurors who are most able to recall the judge's oral instructions, that unfortunately our ability to recall things clearly declines with age, and that it's a little bit unfair. We, there's a lot of concern at the moment about whether the internet generation can be jurors because their attention span is too short. So um, we, we paid... Uh, put pay to that. I'm going to quickly go through the rest of our findings so that there's a chance for some dis uh, questions at the end. Um, this was the first time anyone was able to look at the extent to which jurors are aware of media coverage of their cases. Um, and what we found was that actually most jurors recall, um, if, if they recall any coverage, it's coverage that occurs while the trial is going on. That actually any coverage of their case that happened prior to the case, they're more, it's more likely to fade from their memories. But a third of jurors on high-profile cases said they did recall some pretrial coverage. Um, jurors in high-profile cases recalled uh, their media, the media coverage from two main sources, which was television and national newspapers, and that's really substantially different from people who are on very short one- or two-day cases, where if they saw any coverage, it was from local newspapers. 20% um, of jurors on high-profile cases who did recall the media coverage said they found it hard to put it out of their mind, which may raise some concerns. And then finally, which is, this is one of the big issues confronting uh, trial by jury at the moment, is 
how do we stop jurors going home at night and looking for information about the defendant and the case uh, on the internet. Um, what we were able to do is ask jurors uh, whether they had looked for information on the internet um, and found that certainly on high profile cases, a quarter of jurors did admit that they did this uh, despite judicial directions against it. It poses serious problems for the future of trial by jury because that means that jurors may be trying the case on evidence that is not presented in court. It may be false evidence. There may be reports that someone has a previous conviction on the internet that are false. Um, and this has led to a number of collapsed trials and mistrials in the country where jurors have had to be removed. But what we still don't know, actually, is how are jurors actually using the internet? Is it just looking for information, or are they actually discussing their case on social networking sites? And how can we stop this happening? Um, and then finally, do jurors understand the jury process? We, we asked them um, a number of questions. Uh, about their awareness of, of the rules. And interestingly, almost all, all of the jurors felt it was really important that they couldn't speak about what happened in the deliberating room. But the areas of concern are that most of them said they wanted more information about how to conduct deliberations, and almost half said they wouldn't know what to do if something improper happened. Um, I'm just, I think I'm going to leave it now to say, where are we still in the dark? Um, we still don't really know uh, exactly how jurors are using the internet and how to get to grips with that. We have no understanding at the moment of the extent to which jurors understand complex evidence and are influenced by expert witnesses, and the extent to which um, giving information to jurors remotely via screens affects their understanding and their comprehension of cases. Um, and I, I'll leave you with some future challenges to trial by jury. Um, you know, in 10 years' time, this is where we could be. This can be the courtroom of the future, in which there is hardly anyone in the courtroom. Virtually everything is coming in remotely. Jurors may sit at home and conduct their deliberations. They may be viewing evidence in 3D with goggles on. We have no idea at the moment about how that may affect trial by jury. Um, so I'd suggest that that's where we need to be. And I will leave you, finally, with an answer to the questions that I posed at the beginning, um, simply to say, all of these have now been proven to be myths. Okay? And if we have any time, I'll be happy, happy to take some questions. Thank you. Oh, that was remarkable. It's uh, amazing the power of actually seeking answers to precisely posed questions rather than inference. Right. So um, we're open for questions. So we have one person here. I was really interested what you said about Snaresbrook because I was recently a juror at Snaresbrook, and one Tell issue. Tell me what you said in the deliberating, please, uh, or any of us. Um, well, that would have been another question, but in the interest of time, one issue that struck me and lots of other jurors on day one was about safety, um, and particularly, you know, you're being caught in the morning listening to a violent offence, and then you go out to the sandwich shop at lunchtime, and the defendant's family would be stood behind you, and you know, you get on the tube going home at night and again you know the defendant's family would all be there and people felt very very exposed and vulnerable and it's not a large leap of imagination to think that that might affect verdicts as well so I just wondered if that came up in the study. Um, 
It wasn't a particular question that we asked in the study, but it's a very interesting issue, and uh, many of you will know that there's something called jury tampering, where someone may attempt to contact jurors during the trial and try and influence them. And in fact, you may also know that the law has recently changed, and it is now possible in cases, in very severe cases of attempts to tamper with the jury, that the court may decide to try, try those cases by judge alone. And we have had, um, uh, uh, um, last year we had the first instance of trial by judge alone in a serious criminal case, specifically as a result of jury tampering. But I know certainly from speaking to jurors that their personal safety is a big issue. It obviously depends on the type of case involved. And many courts have very specific uh, ways of organizing their jurors so that they never enter and exit through the same door as other members of the public, but not every court does that. And sometimes it can put you in very close proximity to people, and I, I appreciate that that's a, a very uncomfortable situation. In quite a few newspaper, newspaper articles, I've read that the conviction rate in rape cases in this country is 6%. Where would that figure come from? I'm really glad you raised that. Um, that's, that is one of the big myths. And what I was trying to explain is the 6 to 10% is the proportion that most people think of when they think of a, a conviction rate in rape cases. And what that is, is those, that's a proportion of cases uh, where from the point at which someone alleges to the police that a rape has occurred, and a conviction has been achieved. And what we were saying is, if you actually look at the stage in which the jury, the final stage of the whole process, in which the jury is asked to make that, that assessment, you actually have a 55% conviction rate. And unfortunately, what most people understand that 6 to 10% to be is the jury conviction rate. There is widespread belief that actually juries are heavily biased against female complainants. Uh, well, I, I, no, I wouldn't say that that necessarily one follows the other. Juries have, those of you who've sat on a jury will know, what you're asked to do is to consider the evidence presented to you, to weigh that against what the law says is required in order to convict someone, and then to be sure. And I think when we understand it in those terms, that's not... It's not, the jury's not saying, oh, we don't think anything happened, we, don't, we think the, the complainant is a liar. They may simply be saying, we're not sure. Based on the evidence put before us, we are not sure enough to convict. Okay? We have uh, another question at the back, please. Thank you. Uh, can I just ask about the role of the Crown Prosecution Service in this? In that I'm they sorry, provide... could you begin again? There was yes. a little noise. Yes. Okay. The, the Crown Prosecution Service provides some sort of filtering of cases before they go to court, mm -hmm. and so you would expect they'd filter out those such where there's little chance of getting a prosecution just because the doubt will be sufficiently high. Now, in those circumstances, wouldn't you expect the proportions of acquittals to be independent of the kind of conviction. 
doesn't um, mean they're not doing their job perhaps as thoroughly as they could do? I'd really put it the other way, which is the Crown Prosecution Service has to make the same judgment for every single offence. In order to bring the case forward, they, they have to believe that there's a reasonable chance of achieving a conviction. And if that's, that's the same measure for every offence, therefore what you should... It, what you might expect to see is that for every single offence, the jury conviction rate would be pretty much the same. But what we found is that it differed very significantly by offence. And then if you look at which offences were at the top and which were at the bottom, you began to see, or well, we certainly began to see that there was a pattern, that the, those offences where there is going to be clear evidence, usually physical evidence, let's say making indecent photographs of children. I think we can all imagine what kind of evidence is put before a jury and how diff different that is, for instance, from uh, an assault case where one person's alleging, it's always a, usually a self-defense argument, one person's alleging that, you know, admitting that they hit the person or assaulted them in some way, but they acted in self-defense. And those are going to be much more difficult judgments, I think, for a jury to be sure about in the absence of perhaps any physical or, or you know, um, corroborating evidence from witnesses. Not necessarily, no, because it's, it's the, the legal requirements of what's re required for the particular offense. So I, do, I, mean, I think some, and what you'll see, um, on the, if you look at the Crown Prosecution Service's own website, it goes through all the offenses, and something like threatening to kill. Threatening to kill is, in, in order for the jury to convict, they have to be sure that the alleged victim honestly believed that the threats were going to be carried out. Now, it's a lot of mental gymnastics to do, and it's pretty hard to be sure of that. And the Crown Prosecution Service itself acknowledges that it's very difficult to achieve convictions on those offenses. So, you know, the offenses are not identical. The types of evidence that are going to be presented and the legal requirements are going to be different. Okay, thank you. I'm afraid we must close there because there's another class uh, coming in. Uh, if I can remind you that the next lunchtime lecture will be next Tuesday. And let's thank Professor Thomas again for a very interesting lecture. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk.